gospel reading is Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on, and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The word of the Lord. good to be here. I was here, uh, I guess, several months ago, a few months ago, and it's really good to be back. Uh, I'm Charlie. I pastor Hope Presbyterian Church on the east side, new-ish, maybe about eight months in at Hope. Before I got to Hope, um, Hope went through a season very similar to the season that you guys are in now, a season without a pastor. Trying to figure out who they were as a church, what they were going to do, what was next. And um, now that I'm there, eight months in, and everything sort of feels new, even though Hope has been around for years. It feels like we're a new church. And I'm willing to, uh, willing to bet that when uh, down the road for you guys, there'll be a time of where this waiting period is over and everything will feel new. At least that, that's, that's my hope and expectation. Uh, because we're in this newness season, we thought we'd take some time and um, not rethink, but maybe retrieve what it is that we're actually supposed to be doing as a church. Sometimes in life as a church, you just kind of get in the habit of coming here and worshiping every week and you have meetings and you have leaders and you try this, you try things in the city and you, you kind of get going and you're laying on cruise control and we forget that uh, the church has a specific task, a specific mission. The church has something very specific that God has called her to do. Uh, it's easy to forget that. So one of the things we're doing at Hope is we are spending time focusing on what is the mission of the church. Uh, what is it exactly that we're supposed to be doing here? Now, in the Bible, the, if we were going to pick one place where the mission of the church is, is given... Uh, all in one passage, the most clearly that we can make it, uh, that would be in this passage we just read, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, where Jesus, uh, the risen Jesus, he had risen from the dead. He calls together the 11. Uh, it was 12, but they lost a guy. Uh, now it's the 11. And this was this is sort of like, he had way more disciples than 11. Uh, and there, there was a big group of men and women and kids as his disciples. But here he calls together the 11. 
And that's like uh, like the the repre- like the almost like the elders or uh, the leaders. Sort of like how in ancient Israel there were twelve tribes, and each of those tribes had a leader. This eleven, um, I think twelve, uh, were the leaders of the new church. So Jesus calls them together, and he gives them a charge, a commission. And the way that Matthew, the gospel writer, frames this should stick out in our minds. Uh, if you think back to the story of Israel being delivered from Egypt after the, you know, the Exodus event, when God really formed them as a nation, he brought them out of Egypt and through the desert to Mount Sinai. And God stood, um, you know, God was there on the mountain and he gave his people his law. In fact, they had the leaders of all the 12 tribes come real close in on the mountain and God there on the mountain through his man, his representative Moses, God gave the people a law, the 10 commandments and the the subsidiary laws that support that. And then he said, now you guys go keep these laws, you know, teach them to your kids. And this is what we're going to do as a people of Israel. And that first generation didn't do so hot. They wandered in the desert for 40 years, um, basically forgetting about the law, rejecting the law, and then God brought them together once again, the next generation. We read it a second ago out of Deuteronomy. God had his man Moses go up on a mountain, this time a different mountain, right at the edge of the promised land, and he gave the law, the Ten Commandments, and the subsidiary laws that support that. And then he told the people, go keep these laws. Uh, be God's people. Go out there into the world and this is, this is what you're going to do. These laws are the direction that you're going to live in. These laws are the, the railing that you're going to put up to stay away from danger. And these laws are going to be like the mirror that you hold up to see that your righteousness doesn't come from yourself, but it comes from God. So go teach these things to your kids and show the nations. Let the nations be glad, like we read earlier, when they see what we're doing. So God had done this thing before with Israel, twice, where he had his man go up on a mountain and uh, reiterate the law and then say, all right, now go forth, people of God. Be a light to the nations. Go keep these laws. Teach them to your kids. That was part of Israel's story. Here, at the end of the book of Matthew, after Jesus had risen from the dead uh, to save the world, he calls together his, his 11, the leaders of his new people. And he says, Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to keep the law. All these things I have commanded you. Just like Old Testament Israel had a a mission, uh, had a charge, so does the church. It was given to us by God's man who stood on a mountain in Galilee. Showing God's glory in his resurrection. He looks out at us, our leaders, our forerunners. And he says, these things I've taught you, keep them. Teach them to other people. Teach them to your kids. So the big question this morning is, what does it mean for us 
It's M-Town Church, it's Pope Prez, it's the church in Portland, it's the church in the world. What does it mean for us to be a law-teaching church? Or maybe better stated, uh, what does it mean to be a Jesus-teaching church? You know, Jesus stood on the mountain and, 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 and it's a, he says to his 11, he says, teach them. Well, who's them? Well, it's the nations. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them uh, to observe, to obey everything I've commanded you. To be a Jesus people, which I think is what we want to do. Being, doing church is way too hard if we're not trying to be Jesus people. So the fact that we're all still here, I really believe we want to be Jesus people. Being Jesus people doesn't just mean knowing about his life. It doesn't just mean believing that he died and rose from the dead, although that's critically important. It doesn't just mean uh, understanding the things that he taught or putting his message out there. It also means keeping it. Keeping the law, the law of Christ, and teaching other people, not just to know it, but also to keep it. Like we teach our kids how to do certain things to live. <laughs> uh, teaching people. So what does it mean to be Jesus people? What does it mean to live toward the God-given mission he's given us as a church? What does it mean for in town in the season, waiting for whatever's next to be really be focused on what's critically important? Well, one of the things that it means, according to Jesus, uh, in that glorious moment where he stood as sort of a new Moses, having delivered his people, and he said, here's the thing I want you to do. One of those things is to be a Jesus teaching, Jesus law-keeping church. Critically important. But keeping Jesus' commands is hardly, at least for me, at the top of my list of things that I want to publicly talk about. When I tell people I'm a Christian or when I'm telling people about our church, I really want to major on grace and belief and freedom and liberation. I don't want to focus in on law-keeping. Here's Jesus in his new Moses moment on the mountain. And what does he have to tell the guys? Teach the people how to obey everything I've commanded you. So here's my question for this passage. And here's what, what we're going to spend you know, the rest of our time on. What are the benefits? Because I want to know. What the benefit? Because it's hard. It's hard to, to be a law, Jesus law, teaching, keeping church. What are the benefits of doing that? Why, why should we? Other than the fact that he commanded us to. What's, what are we going to get as a church? If we decide to spend time and relational equity on teaching people to keep Jesus' commands. Because that's harder. That's harder than just teaching people about Jesus. What do we get? Well, there's three things that I see sort of signaled at here in, in the text I want to show you. And I think that getting our heads, even our hearts, even our imaginations around these three things 
helps us not to, just to turn to the right direction as a church so that hope can be ready for this next season, so that in time can be ready for this next season, but to t- turn towards this, the, the Jesus-keeping direction as a church with all of our hearts. That's the goal. So three reasons, three things that we get when we become Jesus teaching, Jesus law keeping teaching people. Maybe I should get my sermon notes out. (laughs) All right, number one. Teaching obedience to Jesus subverts our tendency to slip into self-righteousness. Teaching obedience to Jesus, to his law, to his commands, it's subversive. And it subverts our tendency to slip into self-righteousness. Self-righteous behavior, self-righteous thoughts, self-righteous views of who we are. Now, I don't know if you know this, but uh, self-righteousness is the enemy of the gospel. It, think about Jesus' You know, three years as a Jewish rabbi, his teachings that we have recorded in the gospel. The, the, the folks, the group that he just got onto the most. If we had to name a, an, a human opponent of Jesus and his teaching and his message, who, who would it be? The Pharisees, that's right. The religious leaders of the people. Religious folks. Now, the Pharisees weren't the only religious folks group in ancient Israel, but there was something about them that that really caught Jesus' polemical attention. And it's the fact that the Pharisees believed that they had figured out how to be righteous. They thought that they nailed it. They, They had this eschatological hope, or maybe differently, more more. Uh, clearly stated, they had this expectation that they themselves, having figured out how to drive within the lines of the lane of God's law, how to keep it, it would get God's attention. And then God, therefore, so impressed with the Pharisees' good behavior, would deliver Israel from their bondage to the Romans. It was uh, kind of a grand idea Maybe in some way noble, but it was incredibly self-centered. They thought that if they themselves, their little religious political group, uh, since they themselves had figured out how to keep God's law, of course it would get God's attention and he would bless all of Israel as a result. These people were incredibly self-righteous. Uh, there were also kind of a lot like us. Uh, we tend to do the same thing. You know, we think that we, we, we kind of get in this mindset, at least I do. I, I, I don't know you guys very well, so maybe I shouldn't judge. Uh, but I get in this mindset that, oh, you know, I know my Bible. And, you know, I grew up in church. I get it. And, you know, I'm just going to be a faithful Christian. And, you know, things, mostly things for my family, um, are going to go well. And you know what? If other, a lot of other people, be, things are going to go well for my family because I'm doing it right. 
And you know what? If enough people did it right like me, things would go well for our churches. And if enough people did it right like us, things would go a lot better for our city. And if enough people were like me, things would go way better for our country and even for the world. I, I get caught into this kind of thinking. Uh, it's just like what the Pharisees thought. But self-righteousness is a delusion. And it's one that we all get caught up in. In fact, you, you could even argue that it's the root sin behind so many other sins. Why did Adam and Eve reach for that fruit? But Because they wanted to be like God. Well, when we teach Jesus' commands, and when we teach how to keep them, when we teach the law of Christ, it subverts our tendency to slip into self-righteousness. It's like an act of resistance. You know, we've been reading about, in, in the news, about the, 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 the heroes in Ukraine who are uh, acting in resistance to um, their occupiers. And some of them are military folks. Some of them are normal uh, civilian folks. Some of them are uh, computer hackers around the world. You know, sub subversion is happening right now. Well, we all live under the threat of the invasion and the dominance of our own self-righteousness. And do you want to be subversive against that oppressor? Teach obedience to Jesus' law. In the Bible, God's law, and his law reiterated and expounded in the teaching of Jesus, it acts like a mirror. It's when we read the Ten Commandments, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great exposition on the Ten Commandments, we read it, we begin to see ourselves as we are. People who don't measure up. People who aren't righteous. You know, I think about, there's, the, there's a classic one that so many of us, uh, especially so many of us males who grew up in churches, um, heard from our youth group leaders. <laughs> Uh, you know, Jesus stands there in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery to the Ten Commandments. And he says, but I, I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery in his heart. I remember learning that as a, as a youth group kid. Uh, it's a good thing to teach hormonal young teenagers. Uh, and that doesn't just go for men. That goes for men and women. Anyone who engages in lust, even in the privacy of their own Mind is, is an ultimate reality committing the same sort of sin as adultery. Guilty. And when I read that in the Ten Commandments, you know, I, uh, um, I'm married. I've been married for 11 years. I love my wife. You know, I think I'm doing pretty good. But when I read Jesus' Jesus's law, it says, hey man, have you ever engaged in lustful imagination guilty Ooh, it's hard for me to be self-righteous in that way it's a mirror it, it, Jesus' law shows me how, how broken I actually am it, it also acts as, as sort of a guardrail hearing God's law hearing Jesus' commandments it shows us where the line is. It helps me as 
uh, a person who doesn't want to sin know how easy it is to slip into it. Like when Jesus says, you've, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I tell you, anyone who looks at his brother and calls him an idiot is guilty of murder. It shows me that I, I, that I need to stop thinking, uh, when I, whenever I get angry, instead of me thinking like, uh, hey, Charlie, you're doing pretty good because you haven't killed anybody yet. It helps me to know that the line is much closer. It helps me to keep my mouth shut when I'm angry. It helps me to remember not to curse people. It's a guardrail. So it's a mirror, it's a guardrail, it's also a guide. One of the reasons we should teach the Ten Commandments, we should teach the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' exposition on that, is it shows us the direction we want to live in. We don't want to be a people that are just that live our lives by a code of things that we shouldn't do. We want to be a people who live our lives moving in the direction of what's good. And we can know what goodness looks like. Because referring back to the examples we've already used, goodness looks like marital and sexual faithfulness. Goodness looks like loving our neighbors and our brothers and sisters. So when we teach, not just the content of God's law, Jesus' law, but actually how to keep it, it, we're subverting the invasion of self-righteousness in our life. That's a huge benefit. Here's another benefit. Here's another thing we get out of the deal. Teaching obedience to Jesus' commands subverts our tendency to cut out the parts of the Bible we don't like. Another act of subversion. Teaching obedience to Jesus' commands, it subverts our tendencies to cut out the parts of the Bible that we don't like. Now, um, we have had this issue for a long time. Because we're so prone to self-righteousness, uh, we read our Bibles, we read God's Word, and we, we start off with the, with the idea that we're doing it right. Of course we are. We're good people. And we read along, and then when we come to something that we don't like or we don't understand, we, it's easier for us uh, to excuse it or to put it away or to discredit it than it is for us to sit in the discomfort of God's Word uh, having a a weight and bearing in our life. And being creative, smart, educated people, we often find wonderful reasons for cutting out parts of the Bible. And in fact, our church traditions are uh, marked with these sorts of actions. We come up with reasons to, if you have, you know, in some churches, uh, they, would, they would say things like, yeah, we, you know, the scriptures... It's a good record of how God's people have thought about things or their experiences with the divine, you know, in ancient times. But really, really what we're focused on are those words that are printed in red in your King James Bible. The, the, the words of Jesus. Just focus just on that. And we cut out the writings of Moses or the writings of Paul. or of David. We cut those things out. Or maybe if you come from a different tradition, maybe you've heard something like, hey, you know, as a church, we really, 
you know, we want to be a New Testament people. Um, and the Old Testament, that was sort of, you know, it was sort of for the Jews. New Testament is for Christians. So, you know, we've sort of been unhitched. One famous Bible scholar gave this message one time that went viral about unhitching the Old Testament. <laughs> uh, or uh, maybe if you came from a different tradition, it was, you know, when you go through the Bible and you come across the hard parts. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this. I certainly have. Um, I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul. Paul says a lot of the really hard things. Well, we have this tendency, when we cut parts of the Bible out, we are feeding our self-righteousness. We have a problem, and we live in Southeast, in an old Southeast Portland house. We have a problem in our house with ants, especially in the summer. They come out of nowhere, and they just, we can't get rid of them. Uh, maybe you're like me, and you have that problem. Well, because of this, because we have this ant problem, one of the things we try not to do is leave food out on the counter. Now, when we start cutting out parts of the Bible, it's like leaving food out for your self-righteousness infestation. But when we teach Jesus, we teach Jesus' commands, teach how to, we, we can't ignore uh, the fact that Jesus said, um, well, he said this, I'll just read it. He said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So if we're going to be Jesus' command people, we've got to observe his command, his teaching, that he himself affirms not just the credibility, but also the usefulness and relevance of the Old Testament. And then if we're going to be Jesus teaching, Jesus command teaching people, then we need to observe the fact that Jesus said to his uh, 11, he said this, John 14, 26, The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send to you in my name, will teach you, all the things remind you of everything that I have said to you. And then Jesus goes on to say, As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to be Jesus' command, observing, uh, obeying, teaching people, then we need to remember that not only did Jesus affirm the Old Testament, but the writings of his apostles, the Gospels themselves, and even the work of Paul was not just inspired by the Holy Spirit, but inspired by the Holy Spirit as a form of continuing the ministry of Jesus in the world. So, when we listen to and observe and keep and teach keeping Jesus' commands, we are engaging in an act of subversion against self-righteousness. We're engaging in an act of subversion against manipulating the scriptures to get away with our self-righteousness. Do you see it? Here's a third benefit. When we teach obedience to Jesus and his commands, we subvert our tendency to put hierarchy where it doesn't belong. We subvert our tendency to put hierarchy where it doesn't belong. Now, 
I don't know about you, but one thing that I have grown to notice more and more in my life, you know, I grew up in church. Uh, my great-grandfather was um, a fundamentalist pastor. Uh, my dad is, uh, is a, uh, that guy's grandson, my dad, is a Southern Baptist pastor. My brother is a, is, a, is a minister as well. So I am, I am thoroughly groomed in American, uh, the, speaking in the most broad sense, American Protestant evangelicalism. I am churched. <laughs> and as I've grown up, I don't know about you, but one of the things I've noticed about my people, the church, uh, especially... Um, the corner I grew up in, which I think speaking in the broadest terms, would, maybe this includes in town, uh, which, which would be the, the, the Protestant, you know, hold, holding some theological evangelical values and was mostly white people, uh, mostly with dudes up front. One of the things that we just love doing is putting hierarchy in places where the Bible doesn't put hierarchy. We love to do this. We get this from our culture. And we love to imprint it. I've just noticed this. I don't know if you've noticed this. It's sort of a problem. Of course, I'm I'm being uh, a little sarcastic here because these things are hard to talk about. The church is guilty, 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 guilty of saying this group of people And I'll just be honest, white males are superior. Or maybe, oh, they're equal, but God has given them a special burden. We love to put hierarchy where it doesn't belong. Well, when we teach obedience to Jesus' commands, we subvert this tendency. We act, we're engaging in an act of resistance. Jesus says to his 11, the, the leaders, the elders of his new community. He says, teach them, the nations, all nations, to obey all that I, Jesus himself, have commanded you. Let's just think about this sentence. Very often... And even in the first century rabbinical tradition, the way discipleship worked was like this. I would become the disciple of a famous rabbi. I would learn that rabbi's teaching. I would master it. And then I would leave that rabbi. I would become a rabbi myself. The teaching that I learned from the previous rabbi, I would interpret it or change it in my own way. And then I would get disciples and I would teach them my teaching. The way the old rabbinical school worked was you found a leader, you learned and mastered their teaching, and then you turned around and you found people to follow you as a new leader and you taught them your teaching. But here, Jesus subverts the system and he says, you 11, you new officers of my new church of the continuing Israel, I want you to go out and I want you to teach Not just your favorite people who look like you. Uh, Teach the nations, all people, 
all cultural groups. Teach them what I have commanded you. And teach them to keep my commands. Do you see the difference? Christian discipleship is not Pastor Charlie follows Jesus and learns, you know, all the good stuff from God and then turns around and now you guys follow Pastor Charlie. That is not Christian discipleship. Christian discipleship is Pastor Charlie being a broken sinner called by God uh, to, to stand right here and teach God's law speaks to you as he himself relies on the grace of Jesus and invites you guys to come along as brothers and sisters to fall at his feet and to keep his commands. Do you see the difference? Our tendencies to make... uh, white people superior to people of color or our tendencies to make men spiritually superior to women or our tendencies to make the clergy superior to the laity or to make me superior to Jesus. Uh, These are not Christian ideas. These are not Jesus ideas. In fact, the Christian thing to do, the Jesus thing to do, is to teach obedience to him. Which is obedience that's available for every tribe, tongue, cultural group. Which is obedience in learning that's available for teachers and students. Now, sure, there are times and places where God has instituted hierarchy for the good of all people. A great example is parents and children. That's in the Ten Commandments. It's repeated in the New Testament. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. God put that there. But there comes a time when a child grows and leaves his father and mother, or her father and mother. Sure, in Romans 13, And in 1 Peter, it talks about, and even Jesus himself, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Hey man, uh, he's the emperor. Peter says, honor the emperor. Romans, it it tells us that God has given the the emperor the power of the sword. Pay your tax. Sure, there's a kind of hierarchy there. But only for a time. When we put hierarchy where the Bible doesn't put hierarchy, guess what happens? In order to get there, we have to manipulate the scriptures. And once we start manipulating the scriptures, we're leaving food out for our self-righteousness invasion. You see this? Folks, we live in a world, and we live in a time, when fundamental elements of what it means, or what we think it means, to be human, are, are raised up against true knowledge of God. And here comes Jesus to hold up a mirror, to hold up a, 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 a guardrail, and to be our guide to show us that what we thought was human. Our desire to be the boss, our desire to tell Scripture what we want it to say to us, our desire to think that we've got to figure it out. These things aren't human at all. They're distortions. He himself is the archetype for humanity. He himself, who although he never sinned, 
died the death of a sinner on the cross so that we could live in his righteousness, not righteousness that comes from ourselves. He himself, the, the, the foundational archetype for what it means to be human, who came to fulfill the law and affirm all of the scriptures when we want to pick and choose. And he himself, the archetype, the foundation of what it means to be human, the only human being who can ever claim to have all authority in heaven and on earth, he came as a servant, laying his life down, even to the point of death, so that he would then be exalted, not, be, not by his own reaching out to take his own throne in heaven, he was exalted by his Father, Jesus Christ, the only one with the right to be selfish, is the most selfless human being who has ever lived and who still lives. So folks, when we as a church dedicate ourselves to teach Jesus, to teach his commands, and to teach one another how to keep his commands, we join him and engaging in an act of war against our own self-righteousness, against our own tendency to try to manipulate his words, and against our own tendency to try to be our own saviors and the saviors of other people. Now, I've got to end because we're out of time. <laughs> but I just... One more thing. i got to tell you one more thing. It's thus far we've examined these three beautiful angles of how it's so great, how it's so beneficial, how it's so wonderful to be people who keep and teach the keeping of God's law. And we've sort of left out this one little piece. And it's the fact that none of us can actually do it. <laughs> Every single one of us fails in this regard, which makes this whole overtime message sort of irrelevant for anyone here who has their head screwed on right because we know that this beautiful thing we're supposed to do, we've already messed it up. Well, consider this. Jesus the lawgiver, Jesus the liberator, Jesus, the leader of the new subversive humanity, says this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me. Come to me, you people who are weary and burdened. I, I myself, will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Folks, we want to be a Jesus teaching, Jesus law keeping church. Let's strive for it. And the only way we're going to get there is by falling on our faces every single day before Christ himself. Who says, come on, buddy. Come on, son. Come on, little brother. Come on, little sister. Come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Stop striving.
like the Pharisees. Start looking at him with all your heart. Let's pray.